Alright, Canada, that music means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly look at important things that endure. This week, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is our guest again, as is Dr. Kevin Slack, back from the Department of History at Hillsdale College. And they are back because we began talking about Ben Franklin last week, and we ran out of time. And boy, am I glad they're back, because Dr. Slack sent around some stuff which I had never seen before. I had never seen uh, the Pennsylvania's Brave Men at Fire 1733 essay, Dr. Slack. And as the grandson of the fire chief of Ashtabula, who was a fireman for 50 years, I was really, pl- you know, that gets you a lot of purchase when you're a six-year-old boy, when your grandpa's the fire chief of Ashtabula. That just gets you a lot of, uh, of standing with the other six-year-old boys. This is terrific. I, I mean, is this well-known? Uh, hopefully it will be. Uh, I don't think it's. I don't think it's an essay that most people. I mean, you have to understand the Franklin Corpus. Uh, a lot of these essays in the Pennsylvania uh, Gazette are, you know, they were attributed by scholars later on, and so there's a whole. I mean, there's a whole scholarly literature on what the Franklin Corpus is. Probably one of the great Franklin scholars was J. Leo LeMay, who has written books on what the Franklin Corpus is and trying to attribute different pieces. But this is one that I think almost universally people attribute to Franklin. Would you give a quick summary of it? I found it delightful. I'm sending it around to people. I just think it's absolutely delightful, and I had never laid Have you laid on it, on it Dr. Arnold? Have you read this? Well, I've read Kevin Flack, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, to me, one of the, the interesting things about the essay is, and this, this ties into the show from uh, last week, we usually think of Franklin in terms of commercial virtues, industry and frugality, but we usually don't think of him in terms of being a soldier or uh, talking about the necessity of courage to have free government. And this essay just lays it out. And so here he is talking about the, the need for uh, citizens to risk their lives to put out fires, which is, of course, a great threat to cities in the colonial period. Uh, and so he's talking about the dilemma that you have. Some people show up at fires and they just want to watch. Other people show up uh, uh, and they're even there to loot the houses. And Franklin says, what you need are these courageous firemen who are going to unify together of one mind, he says. right? He's trying to transcend the individual uh, to put them into this uh, community, this association. And, of course, uh, the, uh, the early fire departments or the companies, uh, Franklin helped to establish those as well as a fire insurance scheme later on. Uh, um, in, in the uh, about oh, 15 years later, uh, and so what he's he's trying to do is praise the firemen, and this is one of the ways that you can encourage virtue in a society. If you notice in that piece, Franklin says uh, that virtue is for its own sake; that these firemen are risking their lives because they love one another. Uh, but then you you also notice he says uh, virtue is uh, he says, uh, but I'm going to praise them anyway. And he's pointing out this kind of tension that exists between the things that we believe are virtuous and we do for their own sake, and yet we do kind of want a reward for them. Uh, but it's an insult to do that. Uh, and so Franklin says, I'm going to praise them here in this essay altogether. And so what he's suggesting is, is you need to encourage with esteem. That's a kind of currency in society. You want to encourage those virtues and reward people for dedicating themselves to the public good. Another thing I think is important is Franklin is saying it's the courage of firefighters uh, or, you know, you could translate this to police officers, those on the public watch. That's the same kind of courage that can be used for a battle. And so he says these brave men, men of spirit, are necessary for civil society, happy government, that kind of have a, a, the idea that they are going to rule themselves, have a kind of confidence, but also 
uh, can translate into uh, defending a siege or storm. And here he's referring to the kind of uh, courage necessary for soldiers at arms. And Franklin, of course, was a soldier um, uh, later on. I, I, I love this quote. See there a gallant man who has rescued children from the flames. Another receives in his arm a poor scorched creature escaping out of a window. Another is loaded with papers and the best furniture and secures them for the owner. What daring souls are cutting away the flaming roof to stop the fire's progress to others? How vigorously do these brave fellows hand along the water and work the engine, assist the ladder? And with what presence of mind, readiness, and clearness do these five men observe, advise, and direct? Here are heroes and effective men fit to compose the prime of an army and either lay or defend a siege or storm. Uh, earlier this week, I had Admiral William McRaven on, uh, Dr. Arne, who's written a new book, The Hero Code, in which he says, yeah, the SEALs are a pretty good bunch. He served with them for 37 years. He's not minimizing their gallantry and bravery, but he said, you'll find a lot of heroes if you just look a little harder at uh, regular circumstances. And then along comes Dr. Slack's package of readings, and here's Ben Franklin, what is this, 1733, uh, you know, almost 300 years before Admiral McRaven is out there with the Hero Code, writing basically the Hero Code. Well, so I, I, I want to disrupt this interchange and explain Kevin Slack for a minute, because okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, very worth doing. So Kevin, Kevin Slack is in the politics department, not the history department. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh, what an and insult. He, and, you know, it's a grand thing to be in the history department, too. I actually am in both. But uh, uh, so he's written this book on Franklin, and the book is an achievement. I think it's the best achievement in the study of Franklin. It's called Benjamin Franklin, Natural Right and the Art of Virtue. And what he, what he does in the book, and Kevin can correct me all he wants to, is that he attempts to explain the life of Ben Franklin in the same methodology you would use to explain the Declaration of Independence and America itself. Because there are many ways for people to live together, and there are many competing claims for what the way is to live well. Uh, but the classical way to think about it is a human being is a mixture of a character and an intellect. And the character has moral and intellectual aspects. And so one of the things a human being has to do is think things through. And, and that doesn't just mean what the law should be like and how important the fire brigade is. That's a very telling and important thing. But also, what's the nature of things? And so Kevin reveals to me for the first time, and I think probably just about everybody, he reveals a man who's a contemplative man and also a morally serious man. And he also tracks through Franklin's life how he developed that into the ultimate man he became. And so it's one way to take another look, at, sort of in microcosm of one man, the ways of America, why, what we're like, what, what, what calling makes us have the dispositions and attitudes that we have. And so I think it's a... It's a massive thing. It's a very important book. And it's, now, Dr. Arn, is it what we are like or what we were like? Well, that's, you know, we don't know. Uh, what we know is right now is not very good, but the telling will be in what our reaction is to right now. We, we might rally ourselves as we have in the past. Uh, you know, in 1860, America was very confused about slavery and 
wild uh, readings of the Constitution abounded to justify slavery or to take it off the political agenda, <laughs> and wild accounts of man appeared for the first time, which reduced the human being to the material, which is what color is, right? In other words, every every wicked thing that's present today was present there and armed and getting ready to fight. I, I got to tell you, yesterday I made a claim, which I'll put forward to you to be, of course, mocked or abused if it's wrong or even remotely wrong, uh, is that the uh, proposal put forward by House Democrats Ed Markey and others yesterday to pack the Supreme Court, to expand the court from 9 to 13. Uh, Ed Markey explicitly saying Joe Biden gets four new picks is the most radical statute, I claimed, since before the Civil War. Agree or disagree? Well, the most radical statue is is also in the house right now and that's hr1 and the reason is adjusting the courts that's a very serious thing and taking control of them and subjecting them to political control which is what this is about is to undercut the independent judiciary which is a bulwark of individual freedom and could strike down hr1 if hr1 passed what and, and the nine on the courts right now could strike down H.R. 1. That's why I think striking at the court is worse than H.R. 1. But they won't, you see, because the courts can't stand up against a political majority. They never have in America. And Ham- Hamilton predicted that they would not, and they haven't. And H.R. 1 changes the electoral system to, to the advantage of the party in power which is, and the electoral system is the only way the ultimate sovereign and the ultimate interpreters of the Constitution can control it, and that's the people, the sovereign people and their constitutional majority. And so, take those two things together. They're going to corrupt the regime, and they're going to cut off the one way it might be fixed in the last extremists. And that is so what's that, going on. That wasn't a rebuke. So I'm, I'm on thin ice, but I didn't fall through it. When we come back, I'll get back to safe ground and return to Dr. Slack and talk more about Ben Franklin and the plain truth. Uh, during the break, I'll get an update on Michigan because Larry Arndt thinks it's so well governed up there. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. If and when news happens anywhere, you'll hear it here first. First, when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larion, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Kevin Slack, a professor in the Department of Politics at Hillsdale, I got it right, the author of Benjamin Franklin, Natural Right and the Art of Virtue. Benjamin Franklin, Natural Right and the Art of Virtue. Together, they are doing part two of our Ben Franklin series in the Hillsdale Dialogues. Everything Hillsdale is available at hillsdale.edu, including applications which are flooding into the college because people actually want to go to college and be in college. And we'll talk about that in the next segment. But this is a short segment, and we have four readings to get through, Dr. Slack. Can you tell us about Plain Truth, which I liked, but I didn't like it as much as, as Brave Men at Fires. And uh, we <laughs> saved the, we were going to save the long segment for the 1754 Albany plan. So Plain Truth, please. Would you tempt our audience with it? 
Well, I think uh, this is an essay written in 1747 that Franklin writes uh, to try to create and does successfully create an association for defense. Uh, and the reason that I sent you this essay is because it's a great example of social contract theory. We associate that with the founding, with the Declaration of Independence, where uh, where all individuals have certain natural rights and they create government to protect their inalienable rights. But oftentimes it seems very abstract, except for in the Declaration and the founding. But you find examples of it, concrete examples, earlier on in the century, and one example is in plain truth. So there are five conflicts between the French uh, and the British uh, during this period of time, about 100 years. Uh, um, and uh, the colonies uh, often find themselves in between, uh, right, of course, as, uh, as one of these sides being British colonies. However, in Pennsylvania, the Quakers dominated, and uh, as pacifists, they hadn't levied funds for defending the province. And so this is a great example for social contract theory because literally the colonists found themselves in a state of nature. Yeah, you know, afraid. Doctor, I, gotta, I must tell you, I had never thought about this before, that a bunch of Quakers are not going to be quick to arm themselves against the tribes which are on their immediate western border. I had never thought about the practical problem that having Quakers running anything uh, presents. Yeah, so this, is, so this, this introduces uh, a natural state, uh, as, uh, as it was called at the time. Uh, what that means is, is that properly functioning government is broken down. And what that could be defined as is standing promulgated laws, an impartial judge, and uh, a common executor. And so if you don't have those things, you don't really have government properly speaking. This was actually the, the, what was said by James Logan, who was a friend of Franklin's in 1738. So you don't have properly functioning government. What do you do in this natural state? And you have to form associations. You unify with other people. And in this particular case, Franklin is trying to get groups that are different from each other talks about the British, the Germans, different religious groups to unify in the defense of liberty and property, is how he puts it. Um, and so here we have this example of the formation of something that's extra legal, but when politics is broken down, you really don't have any other choice. And I love in here, you know, Ronald Reagan is known for saying, I just finished an excellent biography of Nancy Reagan by Karen Tumulty, uh, but we know peace through strength is a Reagan term, except it's not. It's actually a Ben Franklin term. It's in here at 1747, the way to secure peace is to be prepared for war. Is he like the first one to say that, or is that Thucydides? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it's, a, it's been said many times before. But it is interesting that Franklin, who is uh, desirous of, of uh, a strong commercial regime, is also recognizing the need to have a strong defense. And, of course, that's what he does. He comes up with a way through a lottery to raise the 20,000 pounds necessary to defend the Delaware and to raise, uh, and to raise these uh, different uh, troops uh, to defend the province. So they did. They actually got the, the troops together. Yes. That, that's just amazing. Dr. Arn, I wanted to tell you that in McRaven's, uh, Admiral McRaven's book, the first quality he describes as courage and the first person he quotes is Churchill. Courage is rightly esteemed the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all the rest. Is that a true quote? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, he, uh, yeah, so, and it, it, that's a very important quote, and it's a very meaningful quote, but it's important to remember it doesn't mean everything. It doesn't mean everything. It just means that Ben Franklin, when he's organizing people to go out and fight the tribes, is relying on their courage to do that. Not, right. They're not mercenaries, right? They're, That's right. They're citizens. Well, they're everything. Uh, Aristotle writes that uh, 
If you fear the bees buzzing around you, you will be unable to achieve a contemplative activity. There you have it. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues after this. Stay tuned. Stop action-packed information. Blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is president of Hillsdale College. His colleague there, Dr. Kevin Slack, is in the Department of Politics, the author of a great book about Benjamin Franklin, And we're talking about Franklin today. Many of you, especially in Pittsburgh, will be under the illusion that we never stopped. We we didn't begin discussing how to organize America until 1787, after the Articles of Confederation had failed rather comprehensively. But the discussion goes back far before that. Indeed, I'm looking at the 1754 Albany Plan of Union. And I'm going to ask Dr. Slack to tell us about Ben Franklin's contribution to this. Well, before the break, we uh, left off with uh, the uh, 1747 Plain Truth, the idea that uh, in the breakdown of government, people need to associate with one another to protect their life, liberty, and property. Uh, Franklin also saw that uh, what would be necessary would be union of the colonies. Uh, We've all seen that divided snake with the different uh, colonies on it. That was Franklin's drawing. And so in 1754, and this is at the the outset of the French and Indian War, the largest conflict between uh, Britain and France and North America, uh, Franklin proposes a plan of union uh, that would unify the colonies. And what's interesting about it is is that it's a a federal form of government. And so there would be a grand council elected by the constituent colonies, so consent would be a part of this. Uh, And it would be delegated certain limited powers over specific objects. So we can see a parallel there in the the Constitution later on down the road. Things like defense or Indian affairs. Meanwhile, each of the colonies would have their right to self-government retained through their own legislatures. So you would have uh, these associations, and they could be added on one to another. That's how Franklin viewed uh, the British Empire as a whole. Uh, And then you would also have an executive, an office of the president, uh, and then he would do away entirely with the aristocratic class, and that was something we very much uh, sympathized with in Pennsylvania, where he loathed the proprietary form of government. Uh, now, he proposes this, and I want to come back to the structure in a second, but he proposes it to the British Parliament. What happened to it there? Did anyone take him seriously? Well, if Franklin's uh, comment later on is that neither side liked it, whether it was the, the representatives of the leaders of the colonies or uh, or the Parliament or those in British administration. He says, on the one hand, uh, you had uh, too much of a democratic spirit. On the other hand, too much of an aristocratic spirit to accept Franklin's view of a federal system uh, where you had, you know, delegation over certain specific objects. I, I also... So it was also it was a... I, I should mention uh, that Franklin probably wanted credit for it uh, much later on, I believe in the 1780s, would comment and say, if we'd only accepted my plan, things would have worked out fine. <laughs> He, it's the first, I did not know this until I read the Albany Plan of Union. Uh, he comes up with the term president, president general, but it's president. I did not know that they had quite a struggle, Dr. Arn, did they not, at the convention over what to call the chief magistrate? Yeah. Well, my, one of my favorite stories is about John Adams. 
uh, he wanted to call him His Majesty. And so Hamilton and others started referring to Adams as his rotundity. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the HBO series with Jim Audi playing John Adams? It's awesome. I love that thing. Yeah, I love and that it's book, just, too. It's a, it's a magnificent show, and uh, uh, he, he is a great, grand actor. And But I, I digress, and that's dangerous. Uh, back to the... Back to the the plan. It's uh, it's is it based on population that in the uh, Grand Council, Massachusetts gets seven and PA gets six and Virginia gets seven. Doctor Slack. Yes. Mm-hmm. So for Franklin, what you had was representation by population, and of course that was also going to affect uh, the amount of revenue that could be raised um, from these different colonies. But he did not divide the legislative power. It's not bicameral. He went the Nebraska route, unicameral, correct? Right. And of course, that was uh, in Pennsylvania. The first, right, the first legislature was unicameral before the change during the Revolutionary period. And the reason is, is Franklin was very much, um, very much concerned about what uh, a landed interest could do. And by this, he understood aristocracy, which he often, uh, we often conflates with a feudal regime. So he saw how special interests could take over a legislature and actually prohibit uh, the common good, and such as raising money for defense. But now we're down to, and I, I think it's fair to say that the last bastion of conservatism in America is the United States Senate and six members of the Supreme Court. There is no Supreme Judicial Council provided for in the Albany plan, and he does not have a Senate. Dr. Arndt, these are, these are fairly fatal flaws, do you think? Uh, well, we don't, you know, probably. Uh, I mean, the, the, remember, by the time the Constitutional Convention was called, there had been a lot more experience and a lot more thinking about how to actually form and operate a government. Because, you know, the, let's say the Declaration of Independence provides the final causes of the Union. Those ideas gestated for a long time in the colonial America, and they got articulated. You know, Je- Jeffers, Thomas Jefferson was the best at bringing them to a synthesis and a consensus uh, but then after that, they got to figure out how are we going to do this, and they, you know, they have all the thoughts that we have today. The immediate crisis tempers their view, and you know what they had was a British government, remote, run by a king. They they conceived the king was useful. <laughs> he actually wasn't all powerful even back then, although very powerful. And so one of the things they want is don't have a strong executive. The interesting thing about uh, uh, Franklin's plan. Franklin's plan is early, and he's got an executive in it, which is the thing. One of the things that crippled the Articles of Confederation. Correct. Yep. yep. So he's a far-seeing man, but whether he's, you know, I mean, because what, what, what happened? If you just look at the subsequent history, it was anticipated what what would happen, and that is, we get in these wars, and we'd need all our strength, and we'd have to unite that strength somehow. How do we do that safely without building an overwhelming central power? And by the time of the Federalists, they see that, uh, unlike the Anti-Federalists, who didn't tend to see this, what they thought was local is best. Local can be more trusted. And what the Federalist response to that is really uh, nothing can be more trusted in all circumstances. And so you have to have an elaborate system of setting things off and making it convenient for the powers of the federal government to unite and be exercised toward the proper purposes. 
and inconvenient or difficult toward improper purposes. Well, that's a wonderful scheme, and it's hard to say that that Frank, I don't know what Kevin would say, but uh, what Franklin did better than that, you know, what what is it, 40 years earlier? Um, So, yeah, the Constitution is a heck of a deal, and, uh, and Franklin's, I think, is better than the Articles of Confederation. Oh, well, it clearly way. is. Now, Dr. Slack, I'm curious who William Shirley is, because he's obviously objecting to the Albany plan, and so uh, Franklin begins to pepper him with letters. And I'm, I'm also wondering, how in the world do these things survive? It's a very practical issue. You're a historian and biographer of Franklin and a, and a theorist of Franklin. Who, I mean, did Mr. Shirley just keep his letters, or did Franklin make a copy of everything via some ingenious device? Uh, well, these... Uh it's interesting. These letters actually reprinted. Franklin had them reprinted in 1766, so he had kept them. Uh, also, many of these things were circulating uh, in, in various forms, some of these early writings. So Shirley very much liked, uh, he's governor of Massachusetts, very much liked Franklin's 1751 uh, observation uh, on the, the increase uh, of the colonies. And what Franklin had predicted was is that the population of the colonies would double every you know, every 20 years. Uh, and with the, the very controversial uh, suggestion that eventually the colonies would become the seat of power in the British Empire, uh, Shirley was very much uh, part of the, uh, the siege of Louisbourg, which was the French importance in 1745. Uh, where the colonies had to muster an invading force, siege the fort, and take it. Uh, and then it was simply given back to the French, which very much irritated the colonists. So Shirley had read Franklin on the colonies. He liked Franklin's writings on the colonies. But what he was suspicious of was the idea of an Albany plan that required consent, or uh, the consent of the governed, uh, to elect uh, representatives to this, this grand council. And so what Franklin does, and I, you know, Dr. Arn always talks about statesmanship, Franklin was very clever, and to get to your comments on the HBO series, the way they portray Franklin is excellent there because he's not some kind of fat, jolly uh, oaf. Rather, Franklin is always scheming. He's always calculating. In these three letters to Governor Shirley that Franklin has printed much later after the Stamp Act, and he does this to show that the colonial position uh, on consent had not changed from before the war to after the war, um, Franklin's first letter suggests consent is unnecessary to William Shirley. Uh, but then, in two other letters, he undercuts his initial position to show not just the usefulness of consent, why it's important, but then also to claim that it's a right, a legal right, and then in his own words to state that it's a right that's inseparable from the freeborn uh, Englishmen and their liberties. It's foreshadowing the Declaration. That's what I, you know, I think it's pretty amazing that he foreshadowed the Constitution and thereafter foreshadowed the Declaration. Yeah. And it's also, uh, what's interesting is that Franklin is, is presenting these as a right, but uh, as Dr. Arnold mentioned, he's a thoughtful guy. And so the question is, is what, um, uh, what form of government is the best government and why? And that's what Franklin is really getting to the heart of insofar as the end of government is protection of your natural rights, um, what form can best do that? And so he's arguing, he's making utilitarian argument, and he's saying this is why representative government is so essential for the protection uh, of your inalienable rights. And Dr. Slack, would you remind us, uh, those who didn't hear last week, how did Franklin become educated? Well, uh, largely self-educated. Yes. Uh, He loved to read... (laughs) And, I you know, want I, the I, audience I, to know they can do this themselves. 
I, I, he, he did go to uh, he did go to school Latin school, but then wasn't a good pupil, and so was withdrawn by his father. Uh, he was quite the rebel. I should mention first, uh, or I should mention also that this this whole battle between the colonists and Britain over representation went back a uh, hundred years. And Franklin's boyhood hero was a man named John Wise, who um, had resisted the dominion of New England. So we're going back to the 1680s now, where Britain had simply revoked the colonial charters. There was no inalienable right to representation. If you were a colonist, you were not a, a subject uh, of the realm of England. And so they could simply take away your uh, popularly elected assemblies. And so they did this in the 1680s, and one of Franklin's boyhood heroes resisted this. He goes before one of the judges in Massachusetts, uh, and there John Wise quotes all of his rights uh, as a British subject. And the judge says, John Wise, don't think your rights follow you to the end of the earth. You have a right not to be sold for a slave. That's it. And so Franklin is around these, uh, uh, these men who embrace the Whig ideas uh, going all the way back to his boyhood. That is, it, so when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the last piece that we'll have time for, which is uh, information to those who would remove to America. So applicable to this very day about if you're going to come here, here's the deal. Uh, that's in colloquial. We'll come right back to that with Dr. Larion, president of Hillsdale College, Professor Kevin Slack, Dr. Slack, also at Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. And all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are found at hughforhillsdale.com, as well as if you hunt around on hillsdale.edu, you will find them there and an application for the college if you actually want to get an education. Lighthouse, the Lantern of the North, I call it. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Last segment of the radio week is the Hillsdale Dialogue, concluding segment with Dr. Larry Arn, Professor and Dr. Kevin Slack. Uh, Dr. Slack, you wanted especially to cover the reply to the governor, the Pennsylvania Assembly uh, missive of, of August of 1755, but I especially want to cover information to those who would remove to America. So I will leave the burden on you to do both in seven minutes. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think uh, the reason I'd sent you the reply to the governor of 1755 is to show that uh, Franklin was suggesting that there are certain uh, natural rights, and he was claiming these uh, against the um, uh, the claims of the governor or the proprietary party in the 1750s. Um, but uh, let's let's go to information to those uh, who would remove to America. Franklin writes this much later uh, in 1784, uh, and what he's doing is he's trying to shape the immigrants who come. Uh, who come uh, to the new regime, right? This is after the revolution. Uh, and he, uh, he's trying to color uh, America for those in Europe who are coming uh, to attract the right kind of people. Uh, and even during the war, you had aristocrats who thought, uh, because they, uh, they were uh, great men back home, and great meaning by, wor- by birth and by wealth, uh, that they would have some position of privilege uh, here in the new regime. And Franklin's trying to discourage that. Rather, what he's trying to do is to discourage them by saying this is a great place for a, quote, happy mediocrity, uh, for, you know, a, quote, middling sort. And what he wants is uh, hardworking people. And he's saying here in the United States that you, are, uh, that you are understood not so much as what you are or the way he says it is. They don't ask uh, who of a stranger what is he, but what can he do. And so Franklin wants to encourage the idea of merit uh, as based uh, on uh, uh, quality, right? Your efforts uh, and how successful that you can you can make yourself, 
as opposed to, uh, again, wealth or birth or the other things that have determined your status in the old countries. I, I love that line, the almost general mediocrity of fortune that prevails in America. It, it, it's not intended to be a, a continental insult. It's, a, it's intended to say we are a middle class, I think. I think that's how I read it. Yeah, uh, and also very important here, I think, is when Franklin talks about this, uh, this middling sort, it's not something that's spontaneous, that it requires real uh, you know, legislative insight. And so he's going to attribute it in that essay to, you know, quote, good government, good laws, and liberty. And so you have in America a land of equal protection under the law without the, what he calls the, the patronage of great men that secures uh, property and profits uh, from individuals' own industry. So the laws are a crucial source of the character of the people. Now, Dr. On, you know I'm a wet on immigration and, and would basically allow everyone who is here who hasn't broken the law or come close to doing so to remain. I would build the wall so we could organize this better. But I think Franklin was an advocate for uh, generous inward-bound allocations of spaces. In fact, it was unlimited. What, what do you think Franklin would say about our immigration policy today? We still remain an empty land, and we need people. You're such a weenie. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, you just have to remember the caveat. Come here to work. Come here to work. Come here to respect the liberties of other people, right? That's Those are the criteria. And there, there's almost nobody in America who doesn't want a lot of immigration. One just cares about what kind. And I don't even think it's very hard to organize uh, I think, actually, oddly enough, Canada has got it right. Uh, nobody wants to go to Canada. It's easy for them. But uh, uh, <laughs> Australia also has it right, by the way. Oh, They're yeah. very the way, tough. I have to reply to your slanders of Michigan trying to re- advertise Relief Factor. I want to recommend <laughs> Relief Factor to, to Ohio because it's good for IQ. <laughs> You know, I like doing that when we're going out on a break because I hope you'll forget. And then you <laughs> so, yeah, the point is, uh, you know, there's a point system. It's Tom Cotton, who sponsored the best bill on this, said to me one time, he said, I said, explain your bill to me. And he said, well, the first thing to understand is you don't get in, you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, in other words, just somebody employable. Somebody you know, I wouldn't get in because time. I can't build anything. You know, I often say, just let everyone who wants to come break. If they have tools, they can come in and then go to Detroit and rebuild Detroit because it's empty. I went from a million. It went from 2.1 million people in 65 to under 600,000 today. That's a lot of empty buildings that have got to be repaired. Just you've got to bring tools with you if you're going to come to America and then we'll homestead Detroit and other places in the country that need to be homesteaded. I think that's what Franklin wants in this letter, Dr. Sly. He wants people who will work. That's certainly true. He wants to encourage the right kind of immigrants. I should also say, though, he was very concerned. If you go back to that 1751 uh, observations, he was very concerned about the wrong kind of immigrants bringing uh, the the wrong kind of principles and the wrong habits. And so he was not uh, very encouraging about the mass of German uh, immigrants who uh, who were coming to Pennsylvania. In fact, he got him into some trouble. Uh, later on in the election of 1764, some of the things that he says about the German immigrants, but he thinks that they're bringing bad habits. And so his solution there is is to try to encourage as much procreation as possible uh, with the uh, the native inhabitants. So that is that uh, the good German stock did, did in fact 
populate the upper Midwest, and most of it in uh, in Wisconsin and, and Indiana. I don't think they went to Michigan much. I don't know. I'll find out. Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Slack, thank you so much. The Hillsdale Dialogues are all at hillsdale.edu. Everything else is there. Thank you, Dwayne and Ben and Harley and Adam. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. You absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.